Sometimes we need a change of pace, a chance to sit back and really get to know someone. And that's why we're adding a new kind of episode to the Butterfly Let's Talk podcast. This is our first episode of Let's Talk in Depth, where we dive in deep and really get to know some of the amazing people that we've met through the show. Our first guest for this special episode revolutionized eating disorder treatment in the United States. And she inspired Australia's first residential eating disorder recovery facility, Wanda Nerida, based on Queensland's Sunshine Coast. So let's dive in for the first episode of Let's Talk In Depth. My name is Carolyn Costin, and I've been in the eating disorder field for about 40 years. That's really weird when I say it. Uh, actually a little bit more than 40 years. Uh, And I started off as a therapist and uh, I didn't really have an intention to specialize in eating disorders, but I had been a school teacher prior to that. And the principal at my high school had said, um, you know, there's this girl that had that thing you had. And this was back in about 1978. When I worked with her, it was just one of those things that I felt like I was inside her head. I, I, I knew all the questions to ask and I kind of, I got her on her way. She became recovered and um, then someone else referred me somebody. And so I started making a, a small name for myself in this area. And then ultimately, you know, in some ways, right place, right time, because I was recovered. I just treated people as if they could be recovered And I've never really looked back from that stance. And now, six books later and running several hospital programs and opening up the first residential treatment center in the United States, I've kind of been uh, doing, doing a lot in the eating disorder field. Your backstory is that this was just more of an intuitive thing. It sounds like it was a very organic kind of process to get you to become the Carolyn Costin that everybody knows about now. Yeah, it wasn't thought out. I didn't go to school and say, I'm going to be an eating disorder therapist. In fact, I when I saw that first patient, I, I remember thinking, well, who can make a business out of this? There are just not that many of them, you know? But I think the amazing thing was I, I structured my own recovery. You know, I worked very hard. I didn't have a therapist. Nobody, there wasn't any treatment. There was no such thing as an eating disorder dietitian. I tried to go to a couple therapists. They had never seen anyone with anorexia before and, you know, said some pretty weird things we won't go into. And so I did a lot of work on myself. And so uh, I put a lot of that. Um, into the practice. And then there are just so many things that I think that I did that have turned out to be very, um, well, it sounds like tooting my own horn a lot, but it turns out, you know, I was doing CBT before I even knew what CBT was, meaning that instead of going back and doing the psychodynamic psychotherapy, I was asking people, write down what you eat, tell me your thoughts about those foods, circle what you are purging, and, uh, you know, just getting into the weeds. And that's what you have to do with this illness. Yeah. So I've spoken to a lot of clinicians here who say that after they've worked for a few months and they've spoken to a bunch of people, these are people without a lived experience themselves, 
they start to see it everywhere. They'll go to a cafe and they'll see the way people are behaving around food and they'll say, you probably, yes, you're probably affected. They develop this intuition, which sounds like that was something that you just had. Well, well, they develop a better radar for it, you know, and I think the truth yeah. is I was able to ask questions because I had done it. So it's just yeah. I was I was early in and I had a lived experience that I could use and I really was recovered. I mean, I I had gained the weight back and I had mitigated all the different kinds of things like the perfectionism and done things uh principles and different skills to ease my anxiety and all these things. And so I just started treating people. And then of course, over time, started seeing other people who were treating people and reading the very early journals and articles and stuff that came out. And so it just progressed, you know. So can we go back to your lived experience before we move on? Because I'm really keen to find out about the program. What, what was your lived experience and when did that happen? Well, when I was about, oh gosh, uh, I think I was 14 or 14 or 15, you know, my friends and I all went on a diet and uh, I, having the perfectionistic tendencies that I did, I just became very controlling around it and I didn't want to let it go. Um, I made a bet with a girlfriend's father. And, and the t- you take the temperament, you combine it with the fact that diet culture was really strongly, um, especially hitting people my age because Twiggy was out modeling and things like that. Yeah. And so uh, what happened was, you know, it sort of hijacked my brain because I have the perfect temperament for it, the perfectionistic tendencies, the... Uh, tendency to be anxious and and harm avoidant and the things we know now are temperamental traits we find in people with anorexia nervosa so it just it just fueled itself and nobody knew what was happening so at first I got all this praise for it until it just got worse and worse till you know it started out where um, certain food wasn't allowed and it kind of boils down to like all foods not really allowed not not at least not in very large quantities. So, and, and, you know, this was a time when it just, this is before none of the eating disorder journals were around. And there were a few newspaper articles and things like that, but it was hard to get good information about eating disorders at that time. Sounds like it was something that you had to discover yourself. And through this process, you've developed um, an eight-step model of care. This, this, the way I treat people, you know, that book, it's called The Eight Keys, and that book has yeah. become a very popular book. But that book, Eight Keys to Recovery from an Eating Disorder, was grown out of Norton and Sons here um, in the U.S. have a series, a book series called Eight Keys to, Eight Keys to Recovery from Migraines, Eight Keys to Recovery from Trauma, you know, uh, they have a whole series and they asked me to write the eating disorder one. And I originally thought that didn't make any sense to me. I, it's, it takes, you know, 2,850 things to get better. And how am I going to put it into eight? But astonishingly, yeah. when I sat down and looked at my treatment programs, looked at the success that I had with outpatient partial hospitalization, inpatient, residential, I came up with eight 
key components and then worked with a colleague of mine who had formerly been a patient who was recovered and she was a therapist and we sat down and just wrote it all out. And so, but it's not like the 12 steps. And I believe that you can be recovered from this. I strongly believe that. I think the evidence shows that. And I, the, the one thing about the 12 step is that they sort of take the attitude that you're always recovering and that you're different than normal people and you are always in recovery or recovering, you know, one step at a time kind of a thing. You have a disease. Yeah, I'm talking from personal experience. I went to, you know, when my my disorder was was getting out of control I and I, and I have binge eating disorders and we were, we were encouraged to find our own groups afterwards and do the 12 steps and then you've got overeaters anonymous which was which is also based on the 12 steps and i've i tried to do the 12 steps a bunch of times but it never worked and yeah i think that that's not a path that i'm following at the moment from my experience this is something that a lot of people had tried as a way of getting through it before we'd heard about your program i guess right i think it makes some sense because there are addictive components and qualities to an eating disorder even the feeling of restriction can can become a sort of a habitual or i like to use the word habitual rather than addictive but if you have bulimia or binge eating there are some particularly addictive qualities to that in terms of what happens with dopamine levels especially with large binges and all the release of dopamine and all that but the the reason i think it's so different is i think you can actually overcome this i think that you can get to a point where i don't think you have to exclude sugar and white flour in fact i have thousands of patients now who were binge eating disorder who now eat those foods and learn to eat those foods in moderation i i don't think that it is out of and beyond their ability to control. And I guess we'd always kind of thought it was something that you just have to live with forever or manage, I guess, forever. So that's a really nice little hopeful message to to get out there. So I guess you've developed this program and then Monty Nito came shortly after. Montanito came, I had been in private practice for 15 years and I had also run uh, several hospital programs, but what I found about the hospital settings, not everybody who needs 24 hour care needs acute medical care. And I thought there, there was a big mistake in putting a lot of people who, yes, they needed to be monitored and supervised and have an external structure and have people around for support, but, but they weren't medically compromised. So they didn't really need to be in a hospital. So the other thing I noticed was in the hospital setting, you didn't have people going shopping for food and preparing their food, cooking their food, you know, eating their food around the dinner table like a family, all the skills that you need when you go home. So here are all these people in the early 80s in these hospital programs, and then we would discharge them and they would be on their own to go shopping. You know, when you're in a hospital, you go down to the cafeteria or you get your food served at your bedside in a tray and you don't have anything to do with making it, touching it, you know, preparing, yeah. smelling it, all the things that trigger somebody who kind of has a phobia or is unstable or impulsive around food. So I thought there is something wrong with this picture. 
I need to have a place where people can go and we teach them the real life skills that they need to use when they get out of treatment. Otherwise, it was a revolving door. And I honestly have seen that a lot in my visits to Australia and, and, and patients who have come here for treatment with me from Australia. I think my record was a girl in her 20s who had been hospitalized 21 times because of the inability to sustain the gains that she made in a hospital because there what there just what isn't an opportunity in a hospital setting to do all those skill based um, treatments. Uh, I think the hospital experiences as well is quite oppressive or a lot of people say that have, have reported that and it treats symptoms rather than causes. So it's not surprising that someone would leave and then relapse almost immediately and, and need to go back again shortly. Well, if you just think about weight, you know, weight loss um, does not cause anorexia nervosa, just like weight gain does not cure it. And what was happening in the hospital is what they were doing is putting weight on people uh, and they would even they would just lose the weight, you know, Um, And with bulimia, you know, the same thing. People had to learn how to eat their fair foods and keep them as opposed to um, keep you away from your fair foods. Early on in my career, people would come to me and say, you know, I have an eating disorder. I'm binging on cakes and and cookies, and but then they would try the approach, the abstinent approach, not eating cookies and cakes. But then they would binge on roast beef and and potato chips and French fries. So it, it wasn't the food; it, it was the behavior. It was their relationship to food and their body size and whatever other comorbid problems were going on that they were using food to cope with or or medicate their their pain. It is something that points to the need for more hospitals like Montanito. Well, I, I think more, it's... I'm just going to correct you, more residential treatment centers. I'm sorry, yes, more <laughs> more centers, more clinics. Yeah. Clinic is probably the wrong word as well. So, yes, I That's guess okay. residential centers. How does it work? How does it work when you go into Montanito? Is it for everyone? Well, first of all, I, I don't own Montanito anymore. I, I have to make that clear. I sold Montanito. It's a different company today than it was. I sold it in okay. 2016. I can still talk about what it's like because it's what I would do in any uh, residential. And And first of all, yes, you can mix the different diagnoses, but obviously there's important things to pay attention to because they're not the same. But when you're in a group with the different patients who meet different criteria, I mean, one of the most important things to say is, look, you're all here because you have an unnatural relationship with food and food and weight have taken a unusual priority in your life and and including how you evaluate yourself. So what we're going to do is get back to a a natural, healthy, and I healthy in quotes, each person finds what's, what's appropriate for them, you know, the relationship to food and your body, that that's the goal. And so you can mix diagnosis. You'd have to be transparent. You have to be open about it. You have to say things when you're running groups, like, you know, let the people with anorexia, you know, the people with binge eating disorder might say things like, oh, you know, we admire all the, all you guys who have anorexia because you have such willpower and you have to be astute as a clinician say things like, that's not willpower. If she really had willpower, she would eat this cookie right now. 
you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm and, sorry to laugh at that. That's no, no, but, it's, but it, it is kind of funny, but I, I like to use humor and I say this, you know, you have to be able to know how to show people when they think, you know, their logic has turned on its head. And although they think they might be in total control, you can show them that that's not really control because if it was really control, you could eat it and yeah. or not eat it, but your brain now is hijacked and obligates you to not eat the cookie. So you no longer have free will or control like you think you do. Things like that. So you've been to Australia and you've seen how, you know, the system works here. How do you think Australia would benefit from having a, a similar kind of residential facility? Well, I mean, look at it this way. I had so many patients sent from Australia here. Why should they fly all the way here and leave their families, which family work is very important and um, be, you know, there, there's just no reason for it. So Australia, finally, I'm so glad the residential program, and I've actually been there. I've been involved in it from early, early on in the sense that I was originally going to help set it up. But um, then when I left Montanito, uh, I had a non-compete and I couldn't be involved, but I've been on the sidelines and talking to the people involved because I still am involved somewhat with the butterfly organization there. And so yeah. I think that Australia is going to, you know, it's the, it's going to be a game changer in Australia. Uh, in what kind of a way do you think it is? And because we were talking about, you know, a large country and just the one clinic. Here's the thing. I mean, I was the first clinic in the U.S. It took a while for it to be how it is now, where residential treatment programs are all over the place, because when something's new, it sort of has to be tested and people have to believe in it. Now, you don't just I'm not saying you just open a residential center and it's automatically successful. I mean, the clinicians have to be well trained and they have to know what they're doing. And there's a lot of specifics about how a residential should be run and a former VP of clinical programming at Montanito is actually one of the clinical consultants sharing some of that wisdom. Going in and out of hospital just isn't working. And if you have that experience and the person's not getting better, then you look for an alternative. When I opened here in California, the, the first Montanito but so many families had tried hospitalization or outpatient treatment and outpatient wasn't enough. And the hospital was too confining and too medically oriented that they ended up saying, you know, I'm willing to pay if it, if it helps. And I think Australia yeah. is going to have that in the beginning. And it may even be surprising that Australia will get people from some of the other nearby countries who also then don't have to fly all the way to, you know, America. To get the other thing I wanted to ask is uh, through Montenegro, you, with, with these kind of facilities, there's always new research and new findings and things that have come from that facility. What are some of the findings that have come from Montenegro and your experience from residential centres like that? Well, interestingly enough, I think that not weighing patients and telling them their weight was uh, uh, not showing them their weight was significant. That goes a bit against uh, the current CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, which promotes um, weighing, weighing patients and showing them their weight. And uh, Montanito's outcome study was a one to 10 year outcome study. And we can talk about that in a few minutes. It's pretty significant, but 
not only did it did it fare well in terms of what happened with weight and, and the diagnosis of anorexia and bulimia, because we didn't study BED, we didn't have enough um, numbers to study BED. The BED stands for binge eating disorder, which we now know is one of the more common eating disorders. Not only was that significant, but patients um, report that learning to wean themselves off, off the scale and not looking at the number was one of the most significant things, as well as having the opportunity to work with people with lived experience, people who were recovered. Those were two things that came out in the patient evaluation surveys that I, I always thought would be significant, but then you know it just, it just surfaced in, in the data we were getting from the evaluations when patients left. And the follow-ups, 10 years, 10 years down the road. That's amazing. Like you said before, Australia is a little bit behind. How long do you think it'll take us before we start to benefit from what you've got? Is, is it going to be just a, you build it and, and it will come kind of a situation? You know. <laughs> well, it kind of, it was like that here, but I have learned about the, uh, the some of the bureaucratic problems that happen I mean, yeah. they happen everywhere, but but yeah, they do. The, the way that you must collaborate with people in order for them to take the reins and to not just get better while they are being monitored and supervised, but to internalize those skills and take them out with them to avoid relapse can happen in right. residential. And it's that's less likely to happen in an inpatient hospital setting where there's all the controls because you try to run it in a way like a family, including the exercise. And like I said, going shopping, even going to buy new clothes when the patient gains weight and needs to buy new clothes. All of these things have to happen. It may very well be that I do some consulting because I'm out of my non-compete now that, um, makes it so that I can't consult with other programs. I can never own my own treatment center, but now I can I can consult and help out. But look, I think I think we this is a good spot for us to wrap it up. Can I ask you though for just a little message of hope before we go for somebody who might be stuck in the middle of uh, a really difficult spot with their with with their recovery. Well, I will say this, your eating disorder cannot be more powerful than you are. If you think that you know, you've been given some misguided messages, even if you're the only one telling yourself that, because you give it its power. I treat everybody as, as who walks in my door, you were born with a core healthy self. And over time, you develop an eating disorder self. And it doesn't get its power from the outside. It's not like some alien being, you know, invaded you. You give mm. it its power. And so my work involves strengthening your healthy self, and that part of you heals your eating disorder. And so there's no way, everybody who I see, I always say, if I could do it, so could you, you know, because I think the power lies in being able to take your, if you're perfectionistic and controlling and have anxiety like me, you just have to take that and learn how to channel that into, you know, now I want to do a perfect slideshow or I want to do a perfect talk or, you know, have this radio show go well. And my anxiety, I've changed and just recognize that I have high energy. So I want to say, I really believe that people can get better 
but I think they have to work in a collaborative place and they have to deal with the battle not being between you and a treatment team or you and a therapist or you and your mom, you know, the battle is between you and you and, and, and you um, beginning to talk back and learn how to strengthen your healthy self so it becomes back in control again. Pretty powerful words there, Carolyn. Thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. To find out more about Wanda Nerida, head to butterfly.org.au backslash Wandi-Nerida. It's spelled W-A-N-D-I-N-E-R-I-D-A. If you like this episode of the Butterfly Podcast, you might want to write a review, leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. We would really appreciate it. And remember, as always, please share it with a friend. I'm Sam Iken. The Butterfly Podcast is an Iken Media production for Butterfly Foundation. Thank you.